Hannah man. Hannah, 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 Hannah man. Hey man, are you high? <laughs> nah, man. man. Nah, man. <laughs> I had to make sure to listen to that too on your LinkedIn profile to make sure I didn't get it right. People say Hanneman, it's actually Hanneman. Yeah. You you right? can do that on LinkedIn. You can pronounce your name so that the world knows how to pronounce it. And mine is uh, that. <laughs> like what percentage of people do you think call you Hanneman versus Heineman and just aren't sure? Uh, if they've, if they've never met me, everyone, like really? 99%, unless, unless they, uh, have a German background or, or some other reason to, you know, assume that it might be pronounced Heinemann. But yeah, most people see it as Heinemann. But then once they meet me, then yeah, it's Heinemann. Then, then they know. Yeah. Then they know. Yeah. Not Heinemann like cinnamon. Heinemann like. Like Heineken. Heine, like Heineken. Like Heineken. Heineken yeah. zeros. Very good. I don't know if you, uh, you probably don't drink non-alcoholic beers. You probably drink beers with alcohol in them. But since I've been sober now for a little bit, I don't know, nine and a half months or so, um, you're, you're always on a search for like the best NA beers. And I think that my favorite is Heineken Zeros, which is ironic because I don't like Heinekens. I like Heinemann. I don't like Heineken. You know, there are some zero flavored beers uh, that are not bad. Actually, so my favorite story, but before we kind of dive into anything else yeah. about zero flavored beer, in, in college, we had a system dynamics project where we had to design a machine that um, had a feedback loop and you had to control the feedback loop. And uh, so we opted to do uh, a beer pouring machine that poured the perfect beer. So you really? control how much head of you had on your beer, of course, but we're doing this on campus with you know school materials and we got approval from the project, but their one qualification was like, well, it can't be alcoholic beer, you know, because we can't have you guys like chugging beers, you know, in the lab nonstop. And we're like, really? So we, we did sample a bunch of non-alcoholic beers while we were building that. So it was pretty well, cool. that was, that was a while ago. And, and I know that it's gotten better since then. Um, yeah. And a beers are like the thing now, like, you know, look at athletic. They got this like whole amazing company built around it. And I swear you wouldn't know the difference in flavor. Some of them are, are yeah. excellent. Um, but Mark Heineman, I am excited to Definitely. have you on. You know, I wanted to have you on when Tim was here. I was a sponsor for one of the young professionals in energy happy hours. You had me come on your podcast. When any, when anybody does that, I like to return the favor, have you on ours, get to know you a little bit better. Um, but I've always found you to be very genuine, um, very authentic, uh, very, uh, unconcerned with how people view you while still maintaining like a, a great level of respect within, within our industry and within your, your kind of core friend group. So who are you, dude? I know you're from Western Colorado. Why don't you give our listeners a chance to know who is Mark Haggai? <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, that, that, that's very kind, kind of you, kind of words. Yeah. I like to say I've, I've got my work face and I've got my non-work face. Um, yeah. But also, like, like to be genuine. So, the the short story is, yeah, licensed professional engineer, uh, kind of technically minded, but I also enjoy writing and uh, I'm kind of personable. I love meeting new people and getting out and networking. Um, I grew up in Western Colorado in a small town called Rangeley. Uh, for yeah. listeners that may be unaware, Rangeley is a small oil field town, and so grew up working in the patch, working for my dad. He owned his own natural gas company, um, and it basically told me that I, I never wanted to work in oil and gas. And so I went to school <laughs> to learn about that. 
and energy technologies. And then as soon as I, uh, or halfway through school, I got an internship with an energy company that happened to be an oil and gas company. <laughs> it, was, it was literally their branding, right? It was the energy of Enterplus. <laughs> and I was like, nice. okay, well, it's oil and gas, but I, I guess I'll give it a try. And uh, D- David Ramsenwood hired me for a summer internship, which was super fun. And I realized that being an engineer in oil and gas is much uh, sexier than being a manual laborer. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, well, maybe I can do this. Um, but yeah, I spent my career kind of doing all sorts of energy projects, uh, engineering projects. I think of myself more as like a project manager than true like hardcore engineer, but love everything about it. So. And, and you're also, you like technology and that could be because of your, your age, right? I think you'd be considered a millennial, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, you, you've always come up with a tech focus and I even remember, Jesus must've been four or five years ago at Franklin mountain where you're working now, um, getting referred over to you. I'm like, who's this young guy that we're talking to? And they're like, Oh no, that's the tech guy. Like if you got tech, you need to go talk to him. And it was very clear that you had a really good understanding of sort of the holistic um, enterprise technology landscape and probably lean toward more of the newer, more disruptive technologies, which I do myself and, and feel a little bit of a kinship with you because of that. Um, growing up in Rangeley, so I'm a country guy myself. I grew up in a, a small town in New Hampshire, probably about 1,500 people, um, you know, a few hours from the nearest city and really liked it. Um, there was no oil and gas there whatsoever. There are some windmills now, which is a total eyesore, at least for me. Um, but talk to me about what it's like growing up sort of in the middle of nowhere. And I'm guessing that oil and gas was like the big industry out there, right? Is that where most of the jobs were? Uh, so there was, yeah, it was was the oil field that I I say oil, but there's also gas fields south of town and, you know, the Piance Basin existed and kind of was up and coming. Um, but there's also a coal mine. So Desrado mine that employed about 200 people in the town, um, that I actually, I worked in for a summer job in between my first summer out of high school. And then first summer, uh, after my first year of college, um, worked underground as a manual laborer, which if you want to be really good at calculus, uh, go work in a, in a coal mine for a summer and uh, <laughs> nothing makes you study harder than yeah, going right. back to school and being like, this could be my life. <laughs> nothing against it. You know, it's great, great exercise, great work, but it, I don't know. I didn't, I, I like to exercise on, on my time rather than uh, for, for employment. But um, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I always say it's a great place to be from. Uh, <laughs> my Damn. dad characterized it as, a kind of kind of like growing up in a first world country with a third world extraction industry where you know we were literally on the frontier um you know it wasn't uncommon for my dad to grab four or five of my buddies on the weekends and we go and do projects out on our wells wow <laughs> you know, like we would go strap tubing or take it to location um i'll never forget what <laughs> one, of, one of the most vivid memories we had a gooseneck trailer uh and, and we we're carrying about 3000 feet of tubing from the yard to location. And, you know, dad had a workover rig that was coming over on Monday and they're going to swap out tubing. But he's like, oh, we can save some trucking money and have the kids just come out here and we'll you know, yes. pay, them, pay them under the table and like get them, get them greasy and dirty. Right. And so, we, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't super hard. But when we were trucking the tubing to location, we went through this ravine. And for those that aren't familiar, northwest Colorado is not the Permian Basin. It is rugged. It is mountainous. Uh, there are 
gullies that get washed out. It is muddy. Um, the, the Permian Basin is so easy compared to that like from a topography yeah. standpoint. And so we, we go through this ravine and somebody, but probably my brother, God bless him, hadn't locked the gooseneck. And oh my God. when the trailer wheels went through the ditch, the gooseneck trailer hopped off of the hitch in the back of the truck, landed on the bed of the truck and slid forward until about an inch away from the cab. You know, and like we hear, of course, you feel and hear this happen. All heads turn around and are looking at it. And my dad's driving and he, all he can think is, oh, my God, I've got you know four kids and the four teenagers in the car. And there, here's this 3000 pounds or joints of tubing like that are about to come through the cab windshield and crush these kids oh like and kill them, you know. And it stops an inch from the cab and then gets thrown backwards, right? Rips the tailgate off and like tubing everywhere. <laughs> it's a disaster. That's awesome. But like, uh, the, like yeah, stuff like that kind of must happen. Like, job, right? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, if if this was, you know, TikTok days, that that video would have gone viral if you could have kept it, right? I mean, yeah. Like anything that's that close to okay. fear or disaster, yeah. but but doesn't turn into it is, is awesome. Yeah. Um, that's, no, we that's fun. I, I, don't, I don't think at the time we realized like how close to death we were right. <laughs> just like, Oh man, that was crazy. Glad nobody got hurt. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean that now some memories are going through my head of like basically near death experiences where it's just sort of like, Oh yeah, I guess that's just sort of what happens when you're like a teenager or whatever. But, um, yeah makes me nervous since I have teenagers of my own, but, uh, that's, that's fun. So, so you grew up kind of in the patch for sure out in Rangeley, good place to be from. And then you decided to go to see you. So even though you're a Colorado kid, that's still a different world. I mean, Boulder versus yeah. Rangeley, uh, see you, you've got a lot of that, like out of state coastal money, people that are coming here and, and even probably just like weather wise, it's, it's different. Did you, how'd you feel about CU? Did you like going to CU? It was a phenomenal experience. Uh, you know, so Rangeley is very conservative oil field town. Um, right. Like voting for all, all the conservative parties, very party yep. line. Um, and going to Boulder, uh, it was the opposite, you know, and that I feel like Democrats and liberals and progressives have this party line that, Okay, especially with the DEI movement where you can be anything you want to be. And I was really excited for that to get to Boulder. I was like, man, I'm going to like get to have varied conversations with people and like expand ideas and have different um, perspectives, which was really helpful. And, and I did have that experience, except you can be everything you want to be in Boulder, except a Republican. <laughs> you cannot <laughs> be a Republican in Colorado. <laughs> so. You could be a conservative. So, you know, I was always, liberal. Oh, I'm a libertarian. I like freedom, you know, like, oh, okay. Yeah. And that kind of you know, disarms people. But um, it, it was really fun. You know, beautiful place to go to school. Um, after four or five years there, I got, I got my master's in mechanical engineering and focus on energy and the environment. So bachelor's and master's is kind of a con concurrent degree. Um, but after a while, you're like, man, nobody here realizes that like oil and gas exist, uh, number one. Um, yep. there's no real conception of how like energy's made or produced, um, which I, and I'm speaking broadly about kind of the town, 
in, in the engineering school, and I'm very biased, but I do think the engineering school is one of the best in the state. You know, I think mines, I don't, I don't want to say anything bad about mines, but they get, they get a lot of hype. They get a lot of credit. Um, and of course being biased, going to CU, I think they have just as good, if not a better, um, I'll say mechanical program than mines and, and lots of resources for the school. So very proud of my alma mater and, um, was thought, thought I got a phenomenal education and made a lot of great connections. And I mean, it was through kind of their career program and department that, uh, I got into the oil and gas industry, right? It was like companies recruiting at CU, um, mm-hmm. both Interplus for one internship and then in Canna, back when they were called in Canna, uh, for, for the next internship that got me kind of my full-time job in industry. So, And now it's, now it's Oventive. Please consult with your doctor before taking Oventive. <laughs> it may, no, you it may cause a sudden drop so in blood I, pressure. I went to work. <laughs> I went to work full time for Invent. Oh, or sorry, in Canada. Uh, yeah. Immediately after school, right? So they did the interview process, and then you get your full time gig, and uh, and then as, as soon as I went in, um, they downsized and laid off twenty percent of the staff, including all the new grads. Which hey. it's a joke in Denver is like, well, you haven't really worked in Denver until you've been laid off by Incana, uh, nice. or now Vintage, right? Like, so, and it's kind of true. Like, there's a lot of people in town that have gone through that organization and worked there and i mean they've done a lot of good business and a lot of good projects and they also had a reputation for a while for uh buying high and selling low (laughs) that's no that's true and and but they've they've made it work um and they have a lot of really smart people there you know that's actually one of the things anytime i meet somebody who did spend time at oventive earlier in their career they developed really strong professional training Right. And, and even the people who are still there are really, really solid. You know, for me being like a tech guy and a sales guy, you always have to be cognizant of meeting your audience where they're at. And the conversation yeah. gets relatively deep and technical with Oventive very quickly, regardless of role. Right. Some companies, it's like, well, that's an accountant. And all he thinks about is accounting. The people at Oventive in, in accounting or IT do think holistically about the organization and technology. And I don't know if that's just simply like the caliber of resource that they have or the type of professional training that they offer, but I think the, it's the caliber is high. The so they, really? They, well, think about the leaders of oil and gas companies specifically. Yeah. Yeah. They can be landmen, geologists, accountants, engineers, generally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that background generates a different kind of culture. Uh, for, for each organization. And traditionally in Canada, I mean, look at their past CEOs, almost all of them have been engineers. Mm. And so that mindset gets filtered down of like, okay, it's linear thinking process oriented, you know, technology focused, like we can do better through operations, through design and through process implementation. And, you know, that's, it's not like they're out hounding on, I mean, they do, they've got a very effective commercial department supply chain and, Yep. That, you know, they, they put a lot of focus in contracts and deal making also, but it's not like they're a land-based company where they're like, well, did we get the best price per acre? And I mean, they, right. they try, you know, but like there wasn't as much focus there and there's, uh, you know, it's just kind of the nature of organizations. Like what, how is the culture generated and what's valued internally and technical expertise and engineering mindset is highly valued there. I like that. No, that see that kind of insight helps, right? Because I have my own theories, but you actually lived it. 
Um, and then eventually, like you said, you know, some, some enter plus, weren't you at Sundance Was Sundance, uh, a company you were yeah. at? Yeah. Four and a half years at Sundance. So you're at some bigger companies, publicly traded companies, and then it's been Sundance and, and Franklin mountain. Talk to me a little bit about like working for big companies and then being like a little bit of a cowboy at some of these smaller outfits. I don't know how big Franklin mountain is, but I think it's pretty small. Yeah, we're, we're super small. So. Um, well, my time at Sundance, I, I mean, I was very conscious about kind of career choice and what kind of company I wanted to work for early in my career. I wanted like a medium sized company that I could have a lot of responsibility, yeah, a lot of autonomy and a lot of leeway to get the training and expertise that I would need for the next step in the career, you know, in my career, um, which Sundance afforded that. I mean, it was a small company, small team. And joined kind of at the peak back in 2014 and then had to live and endure a layoff, you know, downsizing, total reorg. Um, I mean, at one point there was like three engineers on the team. It was like drilling, yeah. completion, production. And we were running, you know, a multi-million dollar capital program still <laughs> with like three of us. That's awesome. <laughs> and I remember at one point the, the, we, we were chatting in the office about like Jurassic Park. And like, how did they put together this like huge industrial project, you know, where there's like these dinosaurs running around and like they're losing control of the operation. And it just seems like there's nobody there. <laughs> like, who's at the helm of this? Who's running this? And then like one of the other engineers on the team is like, uh, kind of like what we're doing now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, mean, you mean like like us, right? You mean this group? You mean us? Like, <laughs> I, I was like, it. oh, no, that's. It's pretty funny. Um, but no, it was, it was awesome experience, um, you know, and, and gave me the kind of expertise that I needed to go in and be part of a small team to do a lot of different jobs. Right. So, I mean, in my career, I've touched just about every piece of the upstream oil and gas industry, um, drilling, completions, production facilities, pipelines, um, project managed, all of those. And that gave me the uh, opportunity that one of my mentors had a startup, um, needed an ops guy to come in and like help with the startup. Um, that project eventually got acquired by Franklin mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, and since, since then, you know, Franklin mountain's grown and we've produced a bunch of wells and drilled a bunch of wells in Delaware basin in Southeast New Mexico and kind of hit a bunch of our targets and objectives. It's been really an awesome opportunity and awesome company to work for. So. That's great. So this is, it's a little bit rare, I guess, for people that are listening that aren't in oil and gas. And that's probably, I don't know, maybe 20% of our, our listeners is personal contacts of mine. It may seem like a generic oil and gas engineer can do all of these things, but being a production engineer versus being a drilling engineer or completions engineer or midstream is completely different. Where, where do you sort of lean toward as like your subject matter expertise or what you're kind of most passionate about as an engineer in oil and gas, where do you think you slant to? Uh, you know, I actually lobbied at one point for my title to be Renaissance engineer. Nice. Uh, that, that one didn't fly. But when we started Franklin Mountain, I, I did <laughs> some allow me the title of director of engineering and innovation, which like, what does that mean? It was just basically like, oh, can go and look at a bunch of different projects. So. I honestly, I, I feel like a generalist um, yeah. and feel capable of diving into a bunch of different projects and asking questions. And a lot of it comes from 
a background of humility and not not being good at things and having to ask a lot of questions, but then also being given the reins for a lot of projects to like go and do stuff, you know? So like by way of example, when I was at Sundance, we had two drilling engineers, we had a layoff. Um, and then it was down to me basically being the drilling department. Wow. And three months after like the layoff, we decided we were going to pick up three rigs at the start of the year. And so I had to put together like a three rig program by myself, like go and hire all the contractors, put all, put all the IADCs together, like get, um, do the, do the design work, do the operations, hire the whole team and the field team. And, um, and th- that was a lot of fun. Right. But then like, okay, you do that for drilling now turn around and go and build some facilities like to s- similar skill set, different technology. So I don't but know, that big, probably didn't answer very well. No, but, but big dollar. I mean, you basically yeah. said yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, big, <laughs> yeah. big dollar, those are large capital outlay projects, right? Like you really can't screw yeah. it up. So for somebody to trust you with that, says a lot, right? And shows that you've you've definitely developed solid rapport with with senior leadership. And and you've mentioned mentors a few times and we're gonna get get into all that. We're also gonna get into nuclear as well as your podcast. It's sort of something I know that you're passionate about. So we, we're gonna have to have to touch on that. But I'm hitting you with a surprise right now. Every once in a while on what the funk I like to do a quick lightning round, right? Put you right on the spot and I'm just gonna say a name or a word, or a thing, and you're going to have to give me like the first couple words that come to mind, okay? So Sweet. we're going to start with David Ramsden Wood. Rambunctiously intelligent. Wow. Okay. I dig <laughs> that. I dig it. Um, let's go with uh, nuclear. Prosperity. Okay, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. Um, something timely here. Denver Nuggets. Winning. Yeah, right now, right? <laughs> um, let's go with Oventive. <laughs> uh, friends. Nice, nice. And then finally... Instagram. <laughs> um, dream chase, live happy, fun, laughing, adventure, yeah. travel. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I know you, life. I know you personally better probably than I actually do because of your Instagram stuff. I think you've got a good um, mechanism to communicate. You know, I forget there. who follows me on Instagram. Like it's really challenging. Cause then like I'll go to bars and introduce myself to people. And they're like, Mark, I've been following you since 2016. And it's like, Oh, cool. So you know me. <laughs> yeah. But you are now that, that happened with um, like Sean Forbes is a good friend of mine. Right. And I think once oh, I followed great. Sean Forbes, then it's like, uh, you know, Lauren Liebelson and like all these other people that I've been following probably for four or five years. And then I meet them and I'm like, Oh yeah, I know you. They're like, wait, are you stalking me? I'm like, no, I think you're just in my Instagram feed. Like, I don't know (laughs) what else to say. Maybe we should connect on like in person too, like normal people, but that's the way of the world, man. That's social media right now. Let's talk a little bit about the podcast that you put out and transition into the nuclear conversation. I know you're bullish on nuclear and I am too. I don't think I have the level anywhere near the level of knowledge that you do. But Chuck Yates, my buddy, has a really positive outlook on it and basically said, if we discovered nuclear now, 
it would be the greatest breakthrough in energy that anybody has ever seen. And I know that that's something that you subscribe to as well. So I'm curious, like, where did this whole passion for nuclear come from? And talk a little bit about your podcast. Absolutely. So I mentioned I went to school to study energy, didn't want to be in oil and gas, went into oil and gas because that's the job. There's a career available, right? There's a job available. Um, at the end of my education, I realized like energy dense fuels um, are some of the best things for humanity. And like the more dense the energy fuel is, the better it is for prosperity. And like this is a fundamental idea of similar to finance. What's your return on investment in an in energy project um, on it? per unit of energy basis, nuclear projects have the best energy return on energy invested. Um, if you exclude the paperwork and man hours that it takes to get them licensed presently. So sure. from a purely physics perspective, like they're the best, they win, right? And so, I mean, I've been passionate about it kind of my whole life, um, but I had a revived interest a couple of years ago and just kind of really dug in on what would it take to like bring some of these reactors to reality? Um, mm. And like, utilize the technology more. Um, so I've been doing a deep dive on it for a long time. So you mentioned podcast. We, I volunteered for young professionals in energy, um, restarted the Denver chapter back in 2018. So YPE or young professionals in energy is, a, um, I'll say very dislocated, uh, organization. Each chapter functions very independently, but part of that program, our education piece in Denver was to launch a podcast. Um, and we use that kind of as a platform to educate people, you know, we could do a lunch and learn where we get 20 people to show up and it costs money to buy lunch for everybody, or we could do a podcast and reach 500 listeners, you know, a much broader audience all across the country. Um, and it's much cheaper. So yeah. love that medium. Um, but I got kind of bored of the renewable and wind and solar conversation and like those have their place and it's the right tool for the job. But if we really want to decarbonize and, um, use a technology and use a system that in my opinion is better for humanity and um, will provide more abundance globally than like nuclear is the only way to go. So we've been on kind of an advocacy train for that. Um, you know, to, to be frank, like lobbying at the Colorado Capitol for some bills that have been in place. And um, we've been recording a bunch of podcasts in the background um, with some technology vendors, with some legislators and, so we've branded that as fire to fission. Um, and we just launched that podcast this week, actually. So we've got about 30 episodes recorded and a, a goal of releasing a hundred this year, um, to kind of move this advocacy piece forward. Of how do we bring these conversations about nuclear and basically talk publicly about all of the research that we've done and why we feel that it's a great solution for society and for humanity. How do we make those conversations publicly and how do we interview people and, chat with them so that people aren't just hearing from me and Mark's just preaching, oh man, we like nuclear, we like nuclear. So, and it gives me kind of a community to talk to about it also, because uh, if I just talk to my friends and girlfriend about it, then, you know, they'll stop being my friends. So. <laughs> so why is nuclear viewed with such like a, a, a negative slant? Like it, is it because of some of like Chernobyl and some of the large scale incidents and people are like, no, we, we just have to get away from that. What is it that people are so anti right. or I guess right now it's in the U S and, and also globally it's not. Uh, so there's this mythology that people don't like nuclear and it's just that a mythology. 
um, recent study came out. I'm blanking on the firm that did it, but I'm sure if your listeners looked it up, they could find it. 76% of Americans support nuclear in 2023. Hmm. It was 71% last year. And in like 2018, it was like 50%. So the tide has shifted and it is popular. Like people hmm. like it, people want it. Um, the challenge with anything or with, with a lot of industries is if there's not an easy way to make money in it, then like who supports it? Who actually like gets behind it? And so this mythology that nuclear was unpopular and it's dangerous, which the, the anyone that says that nuclear is dangerous is lying or uneducated. It's probably uneducated. <laughs> yeah. Data demonstrates that it is safe, like, and has been safe for 50 years and didn't even need many of the safety upgrades that like the industry has made. So this is an unpopular opinion, but it's one that should come out and should be talked about more that the nuclear industry itself has kind of been the biggest boogeyman because there weren't any financial incentives for the industry when they stopped, when plant orders stopped. Mm. The only thing that the industry itself could sell was fear, meaning we have to sell more safety upgrades. We have to sell more improvement, plant improvements. So anytime that somebody says, well, look at Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima. That's why people hate nuclear because there's these accidents. Totally not true. They hate nuclear because it's expensive. Why is it expensive? Because people have said radiation is dangerous. And then that's been allowed them to offer more safety upgrades, um, sell more services to the industry, and it's made it more expensive, prohibitively expensive. If you look back at orders for nuclear reactors in the US, I mean, Three Mile Island happened in the late 70s. Orders stopped in the early 70s. Why? Why were they canceled then? Because it was becoming prohibitively expensive because the industry itself was out-regulating itself. Like, mm. there's this ban of radiation that, um, frankly, like the NRC got too inflated and, and did too much to protect against that, yeah, it, it stopped becoming productive. So, How many the, nuclear... The no, keep going. I, I shouldn't have cut you off. Keep going. No, you're good. The metric that I like to use to think about this is dollars invested per life year saved. So if you think about nuclear, how many more dollars can we invest to save more lives and years of life? Um, and it's a really low return on investment. On the other end of the spectrum, what would be a high dollars invested per life year saved? Uh, purchasing a helmet for riding a bike. Right? Like putting seatbelts in car, right? These are like tremendously high number of life years saved for super low dollars, right? Like versus making safety improvements in nuclear power plants, radically unnecessary. Mm. So it's, it's kind of, I'll, I'll say two prong or three prongs. So the industry itself selling fear, excessive regulations, and those two things resulting in it not being profitable. So if we peeled back some of the regulations, then it would be much easier to build cheaper plants and improve them, iterate on them, make them easier to build. Um, still keep a high safety standard. I'm, I'm not saying don't make plants dangerous, but I'm saying peel back some of the regulations and requirements that people have to actually build these facilities. Um, and then the nuclear industry itself will be incentivized to promote itself and not just sell fear that, well, I just learned a lot. I mean, that was probably the Cliff's notes. I'm sure you could get much, much deeper in all that, but just some like high level basic questions for, for my understanding and for our listeners, like how many nuclear reactors, how many plants exist in the U S 
so plants there's about 50 and there might be okay. multiple reactors at each plant so there's mid 90s um like 92 or 94 and, um, and where and where where are they most of them are on the east coast like east of the mississippi but they're like close to population centers right so these are okay. massive power plants that are really helpful um and produce 95 percent of the time uh yeah you know the capacity factors are super high carbon-free electricity all the time generally right like very 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 valuable um there's only one left in california but uh the decision to keep it open was re- reversed a couple of years ago thanks to a bunch of grassroots advocates um which is incredible like it's an awesome story if anyone doesn't know about the diablo canyon nuclear power plant and mothers for nuclear like go look it up it's there's a bunch of podcasts about it but mm. it's really inspiring what they've done um to keep that plan open and like the california governor did a total 180 on it you know where, where he used to lobby against it and say like we need to shut down nuclear power plants because they're environmentally dangerous which is a total farce and makes absolutely no sense uh but did a complete 180 and said actually we need to keep them open and it's like our number one source of carbon-free energy so like a stat that plant in california provides eight percent of the state's electricity mm-hmm. they're already having blackouts and brownouts if they shut down that plant like they're cutting off and it's like the majority of their carbon free electricity, you know? And like that point right there is why I could actually see some momentum toward bringing these back because look, I mean, ESG and the inflation reduction act, this is all about creating innovative ways and even funding innovative ways to reduce emissions to reduce methane in the atmosphere, which is great. Like, I think we're all on board with that, but how do you do it? Right? How do you actually get there? What are the mechanisms to create technology that can make it happen? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, like there's actually something that we could just like turn on that does all of that. We have the technology, right? We have the way to get there. And it's been around forever. (laughs) Right. I mean, to me, it's, it's really fascinating. I think it's an area that I want to, that I want to learn even more about. Um, Is there a power plant in Colorado? There's not a nuclear power plant in Colorado. There used to be, it was the Fort St. Vrain power plant in Weld County. A lot of people don't know that the structure that housed it is still there. And you can go and tour it. A group of us went and toured it um, a couple months ago, which was awesome. It's it's a really cool facility for a tech geek like me. I'm like, oh my god, look, this was a high temperature gas reactor. It's like one of my favorite kinds. Oh, you can see the containment building, and there's all this old infrastructure. It was, it was really cool, but kind of nerding out on it. Um, there are several coal power plants in Colorado, um, sure. namely Comanche Peak down in Pueblo, and then the Craig Station in Moffat County and the Hayden station in route County um, that are kind of right next to each other. Those are all scheduled to close and there's Colorado currently doesn't have a good plan to replace them and they're not acting or moving fast enough to replace them with firm dispatchable power sources. So Colorado just passed a bill, which we advocated for, we lobbied for, for the Colorado energy office to do a study and figure out, hey, what are we going to do once these coal plants closed? Because we sure. kind of just are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, this is not a great plan. We're going to have blackouts and brownouts in Colorado. And that they, they don't know. So now the Colorado Energy Office has to do the study. It passed the legislator this, this spring and produce a recommendation to the legislator by 2025. Well, everyone says 
nuclear power plants take 10 years to build. These coal <laughs> plants are going to be closed by 2030, like all of them by the end of 2030. It's 2023. Uh, a recommendation by 2025, like we won't have nuclear on for but until 2035. Like that, make, that doesn't make sense. Like we should be moving now in Colorado to replace these plants and acting now to like make recommendations to the Public Utility Commission, make recommendations to legislators, work with power companies, tell them it's popular, tell them we want it. Like, anyway, that's, get me on my soapbox. Like, tell, let me tell you how I really feel. But This is, well, so then let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Okay, yeah, so they're, yeah. they're going to shut down all these, <laughs> all these plants, these coal plants, right? Coal Nuclear plants. plants have been shut down. Specifically in Colorado with these coal plants, you said there's not really a way to replace that power. How do you replace that electricity? So I ask you, are we just going so to have blackouts? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is really sad, actually. So we attended a conference that was hosted in Northwest Colorado. It was called okay. Joint Organizations and Leading the Transition, Energy Transition, JOLT. Um, and it was invite only, but we got an invite to go and talk to the plant managers of the coal plant, Hayden plant, the coal mine there. They had county commissioners. They had people from the utility. And so there's a guy there from Tri-State that, you know, was talking about the plan to go to 80% renewables by 2030, right? When these coal plants close. And the audience asked, right? These are people that are impacted in that community that, I mean, those communities depend on these coal jobs and they're going to basically be shuttered in ghost towns without them. Mm. And People in that community asked, okay, well, if we're 80% renewable and that's our base, like what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? Like these are intermittent right. sources. And the Tri-State guy's response was, well, you know, we're an interconnected co-op and we're going to import electricity into the state from other states. And they said, okay, you know, like Wyoming. And then the audience asked, well, what are they going to be doing in Wyoming to generate that energy? Coal. And they said, <laughs> okay, coal. <laughs> yeah. literally that was, this was said right like could have told it was you like that. uh wait so we're losing our jobs because colorado wants us shut down but wyoming is going to keep burning coal uh utah is going to keep burning coal uh and there's one atmosphere and oh by the way china is going to keep burning coal like and it's oh, building yeah. coal faster than you know, we've ever built it so like this this doesn't make sense you know there's a very um undertone like deep undertone of uh, cynicism, I'll say in the room and, and kind of like if people talk about this just transition, this isn't just, this isn't justified, like to be shutting down these communities and jobs without, without an adequate plan to replace them, you know, it's nimbyism, it's nimbyism at its finest. Right. And I'm glad that people can get to the, to the bottom of that, regardless of how you feel politically, oftentimes like like in in Plymouth, New Hampshire, right where I grew up, beautiful rolling hills. Picture uh, the White Mountains, right? Snow capped. It, it's really beautiful, and and honestly, part of why I love Colorado and why I've settled here, and and my kids grew up here, and I've been here for twenty years, is because it actually reminds me of New Hampshire, just bigger, right? The peaks are taller. And the weather's better. So you can do more of the awesome outdoor stuff that I grew up doing all year. So there's skiing out there. There's everything. Well, now on the top of these rolling hills, there's windmills. And the windmills generate power that goes to Canada. So I'm like, so now our view is actually ruined. And I have to stare at these huge eyesores 
And what do we get from that? Well, we got more um, traffic and bigger trucks driving through the town for seven years when they were building them, right? And more dead yeah. birds. But who actually benefits from this? Uh, not Plymouth, New Hampshire, right? So, I mean, but people didn't really bother to do all that research and now they're just stuck with them and people in Canada are getting the benefit from it. So, you know, it, it's it's frustrating because, um, you know, if somebody put, well, well, there's no oil in New Hampshire, but if somebody tried to drill a well out there and put an, an oil well, a, a pump jack on top of that hill, it would be an issue. Right? And this is where but, perception you know, is, versus yeah. reality is an issue. But there is a shitload of natural gas in Pennsylvania and New York, and you could build. It's not a big pipeline built to New Hampshire, and you could easily build a pipeline. I mean, you can't easily build a pipeline. That's why they haven't. Uh, every sure. gas company in the Northeast wants to build a pipeline, um, and it makes tons of sense from like a pragmatic and like human prosperity perspective, like to have cheap and inexpensive energy in that area. But you know, these are details that we don't talk about. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's much different. And that's like probably an offline conversation. I was in New York City last weekend for a wedding. I was in Manhattan and I had a fun conversation with a cab driver. And of course, if a cab driver in New York tells you something, it's got to be true, right? So I didn't bother to fact check this, but he said, um, you know, obviously the state of New York has banned fracking and there's actually robust natural gas and probably even oil window opportunity in upstate New York. The state of New York, if you take New York City out of the equation is the second poorest state in the country to Mississippi. So you really have a quagmire there where yeah. decisions are being made in Manhattan, right? By people, by the governor and by people that are yeah. in Manhattan that affect what's happening in these effectively farming communities that are very pro drilling for natural gas. And the rest of New York, if people That's, haven't been there, it's not the city, man. Hundred percent. The Marcellus Shale also exists in New York. Uh, this is actually near and dear to me. My dad put together a land play and bought a bunch of acreage in New York, and uh, really? we've seen zero invest, zero return on investment from that. Yeah, which is probably good for me. I mean, I don't know if I'd be working if uh, you know that had been successful. But like, <laughs> well, you'd just be putting out more funny Instagram stories. So I could, I could live with that. That's true. Um, so, so where do you see your, your career going? Like you, you've got this real passion for, for nuclear. You have a ton of experience in oil and natural gas drilling, completion, production. Is this something that you're eventually going to like either merge or start your own oil and gas company, start a nuclear company? Maybe that's too much to share, but I'm kind of curious, like, where do you see your path taking you over the next five, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I've I've told I I don't know I've got, I feel very entrepreneurial. Um, time at Franklin Mountain's been awesome, and I'm like fully dedicated to that program now, you know. And but like, oil companies are cyclical, the industry's cyclical, and we're all temporary. You never know where you're going to end up tomorrow. So always wanting to keep your eyes open. But I mean, my driving passion my whole life is like produce energy for America and the world. Yeah. Um, and so however I can do that best, and whatever projects we can put together to work on to do that best next like i, I want to work on those kinds of projects um you know as i i feel uh very proactive and um you know growing up with kind of your parents that ran their own mom pa company it's yeah. like I, i've got kind of a different mindset than um perhaps what might be typical of some some engineers that where it's like whatever it takes right like i mean there's 
often been times that um, I say, well, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this project done, even if I have to like go out and do stuff myself, you know? Yep. Um, so I, that's pretty broad, but yeah, want to continue generating as much energy as I can for society. Yeah, it's it's energy production. And, and I like that. And it's part of why like your branding does surround energy. I've noticed that, right? Whether it be young professionals in energy, whether it be fission and fire, um, being an energy centric podcast, you're doing a good job, I think, of showing, hey, I work in oil and gas, but ultimately we're producing energy. And we want to produce as clean of energy as possible, which I think we do a good job of here in Colorado. And hopefully we'll continue to do a, a good job of Mark, we're going to wrap up here. Um, where can people find you? Um, you know, LinkedIn, your podcast, you know, where, where can people see, all right, where's this dude? I want to talk to him about energy policy. I want to go on his podcast. I want him to come on my podcast. Where do people find Mr. Mark Heineman? Absolutely. So LinkedIn's great. Uh, Mark Heineman, right? We talked about the, the pronunciation, but the spelling is just like Chinaman without the C. So yeah, pretty <laughs> Or there, um, the the advocacy brand or energy think tank brand is uh, Fire to Fission. So that's the number two. Uh, we've got yeah, Fire to Fission and then if you search on any of the podcasts or YouTube medium, you can see our find our podcast and listen to us interview energy industry experts and um, people that, that work in predominantly the nuclear industry. But we also want to talk to oil, gas, and maybe even some coal. Um, and then yeah, if if you're my personal friend, then I'll, I'll let you follow me on Instagram. So but nice. yeah, drink beer with me. That happened. So I did it. I made it, mom. I just wanted to say <laughs> Mark, before, <laughs> before we wrap up here. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I feel like I've had some very real and authentic conversations with you um, over the past really kind of year and a half where we've gotten to know each other better. I think you're a great steward and representative of the younger folks in our industry and hope that you sort of continue putting that authenticity out to the masses um, because it's important. And, and that's something we preach all the time on here is being genuine, you know, being authentic and, and finding your true self. And I think for a younger dude, you've, you've kind of already done that, which, which I admire. And, and my ask of you is just keep passing that on to others. So appreciate you coming on today. Appreciate who Likewise. you are, what you represent. Thank you, man. Appreciate you.